0: John Copenhagen and Al Warren. One hundred two point three FM Riverside and one hundred five oh AM
1: Palm Springs. Welcome back into the house of mystery. I'm Al Warren, and I got with me today, Mr. Dave Teabag Martinos. What? You're expecting dollar okay. doors, Dave, but we've moved. Oh, to tea yeah, bags. that's because I'm drinking tea. <laughs> tea drinker, old yes. lady Martino. <laughs> I'm Lincoln. drinking green tea like the samurai. Oh, okay, is that what it is? <laughs> samurai. That's what it is. Your samurai. It's my story. I'm sticking to it. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Please, everyone knows what's really going on there, (laughs) screaming at the poor neighbor kids and everything. What a mean. Get off my lawn. Yeah, you're a terrible person. (laughs) Well, anyway, so we are back in the house. We're getting close to that time of the year again. It's going to be fall here, and we've got people getting into, uh, let's see, Halloween and Dracula and all that. And I noticed a lot of the – because we do our our setups every every week, and I noticed a lot of people – going back and playing some of the old interviews we had. And there's in, in the top ten recently was an interview we did with uh, Chris McCauley and uh, Dacre Stoker. That was from a mm. few years ago. I noticed it boomed up another, jeez, 5,000-plus plays in the last couple of weeks. There's been a, wow. a lot of the dark ones, too. Not just not that that was dark, but, you know, the subject matter. <laughs> you know, I've got to watch what I say here. But anyway, so now they've come back, and they've got some – some new things to uh, to talk about, new items. So let's introduce or bring back Mr. Chris McCauley. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. And Daker, Daker Stoker, thank you for being here.
2: Alan, thank you for having me back. Uh, Chris and I don't get together that much because he's in Edmonton. I'm in South Carolina. But because of the power of modern communication, you guys have reunited us yet again on the air.
1: Yeah, that's pretty cool, actually. You know, could you could you imagine what... Bram would have done, or what? What do you think his writing would have been like if he had the technology we had today?
2: Oh man, it, it would have been a lot easier. Um, and uh, <laughs> I tell you, all the letters and the notes that I read, his handwriting is terrible. He probably he was such a techno geek. He would have had, you know, a smartphone. He would have he would have had some kind of recording device for his notes for his thoughts. But you know what? It wouldn't have been as much fun because for, for what Chris and I have been digging into and extracting to create our Stokerverse, uh, half the fun is is the search. Half the fun is deciphering the notes, the typescript, all that stuff, and, and bringing his ideas back to life after 127 years.
1: Yeah, that's, that's pretty incredible. It, it, it's amazing that we that you guys have as much information and access to all this stuff. And it, it, must, be, it must be thrilling going through so much of, the, you know, of his notes or his handwritings and stuff. That must be pretty exciting.
2: It is. And, and, you know, they are spread around the world, literally. You know, the notes are in Philadelphia. The typescript is in Seattle, Washington. There are letters in university collections in Texas, in, in Ireland, in England. There's a castle in Scotland that he was in, Transylvania. So it, it is a, you know, a real sort of a you know Indiana Jones venture that I get on to find these things. And then they pop up as well on uh, auction sites, letters at private collection. And, and when I get a letter and I find some new information, it's like, oh, yeah, another piece of the puzzle. I, I got one just the other day, guys, the uh, Royal Literary Fund, and that's a fund that, that people would apply for financial assistance when they're having hard times, and Bram Stoker did. I, I'd always heard that when he was ill um, near the end of his life in, in 1911, he died in 1912, he, he was you know having a rough time. He you no know, more job at the Lyceum theater, Irving had died, and he had to apply for a grant. They actually had the letter that he wrote to them asking for that, that grant, which is pretty humbling, but also it revealed his illness at the time, so some real factual information. And uh, and it really helped me get an idea of what his headspace was like when he was writing The Layer of the White Worm, which is the last book that he wrote, which is a fairly strange book, and it made sense when I knew how ill he was that that was the condition he was in. But those are the little bits and pieces that I find, and, and then I convey that to Chris Chris, how can we use this? Which of our products and you know he's he's got comics in the works that we do he's got video games, all these things and we managed to insert some of those little bits of information just to make the story seem more authentic and more real.
1: Pretty amazing actually if he, and before we get into the to the new uh, comic and that let's talk about um, with have you ever come across a, a note or some sort of item that bram had written that sort of surprised you or maybe even you thought no that can't be it's just not it's just not what i expect
2: well a- another one by actually it-, it had such an impact on me that i had to buy it for more money than my wife wanted He just spent on it
0: <laughs> you <laughs> know how
2: so much <laughs> no he won't but it's you know one of these things that comes up you get a couple of weeks notice it's, it's an auction on a website you, you don't really know where the item came from Yet again, it was another letter, but it was a letter that Bram wrote from the Cremonic Arms Hotel in, in Cruden Bay, Scotland, and it was right after Henry Irving had died. So it was a very emotional time for him, lost his best friend, but most importantly, he'd lost his source of income. He had no pension. He had no inheritance from Irving. He had no money, and he was having to offer himself up to uh, an American opera singer, David Bishop, who was... Bringing a, an opera and needed a, basically needed a manager for a few months. And it was, it was very sad for me to read that Bram was saying, I need this job back in my day with Irving and I paid this much. This is what I did. I'd really appreciate this. I wouldn't say he was begging, but it was obvious that he was putting himself out there. And I could certainly read between the lines and it really brought tears to my eyes when I saw it and said, I've got to buy this. Um, it, it was gold and because it encapsulated where he was at that time, he was up there on one of his writing retreats. That's where he wrote Dracula and other books as well, in Cruden Bay, Scotland, north of Aberdeen. But it also put into perspective what the man was thinking at the time. Again, when Chris and I characterize Bram Stoker at different phases of his life, that bit of information, a letter telling, all that, is absolutely essential for us to get it right. And, and that, was, that was a bit of a shocker to, to find out. In his own hand what he was feeling rather than what a biographer who might write about and make speculation which drives me crazy I'm getting this firsthand from the source
1: yeah and there's nothing like that right that gives you the real the real feeling the real what what the person was thinking and going through and I think that's the key key element to anything when you're doing any sort of memoir or biography right so yeah well Chris Now, we bring this into you because now you are the circus master, (laughs) the ringmaster. Yeah. Uh, So what exactly are you working on now? I know this is like a part of the comic sequel that takes place after the original novel. So uh, explain for people that don't know about the first one and what's going on now.
0: Yeah, the the first Dracula comic, so the the full title is Dracula The Return, Cult of the Light Worm. So we're bringing two of Bram Stoker's most famous characters together. And uh, it's kind of, you think of the novel, the first comic's a bit like the prologue of a novel. So Decker and I brought the central character of Dracula back in an authentic manner. And uh, we looked through some of the stuff that, that, that Bram had, had in the original novel that had been taken out. And there were these ape, men-like creatures. And we introduced those into the mix, um, so those are kind of some of the unique elements which Edgar and I bring that are crucial, really, to Bram's original vision. So we resurrect Dracula. We also have some great side strips in the in the first issue. Uh, one shows the fourth weird sister, or fourth bride, if you want to go down the route of uh, uh, of the cinematic Dracula stories, um, because Bram actually had a fourth weird sister in there as well and uh, she's, in, she's in London now and she's doing something. So there's a little side strip there and there's a little stra- side strip of Renfield's first asylum. So uh, the perfect uh, Asylum may not have been the first asylum that, that Renfield was introduced to. So we have those little side strips in there as well in issue one. So issue one is really the setup and issue two is where the central plot starts to develop. So this sort of shows what Dracula's up to, parts of his revenge with the with the original band of heroes, you know, how, how the white worm is helping Dracula. He is this sort of there's a lady in white, this fourth bride he's roaming Highgate and what she's really doing with the children. Um and then the, the the really the really special part of this for me, or one of the special parts, is that we're introducing Carmilla into the mix. Um so Carmilla, as many people know was a it's an older uh, vampire story that was set before Dracula. It was a uh, an older Irish writer called Sheridan, the uh, family, and he uh, he created this character, and we believe it's the first sort of LGBT vampire character in uh, modern Western literature. So we have now introduced her into the mix as well. So this is that's kind of an overview of the sort of the first two issues and what what's in there. Wow. Well,
1: this question is for Chris, but Digger could also answer this, too. Um, just listening to you um, and talk about all these characters, and it just makes me think, you know, how do you keep track of all the research and the characters and the continuity um, and, and, and make it uh, align with Bram's writings? Do, do you have
0: uh, tools or systems or some, some way that you do that? <laughs> oh dear! I kind of feel like I have to lie here, but I'm not going to. Spin a yarn, Chris. Spin a yarn. Make them sound like we know what we're doing. <laughs> um, I have four boards, four white clean boards that sit to the left of me. And one of them is where, if I'm doing a, a plotting out a novel, an audio, or whatever, I'll scribble furiously in there. But really, the stories and what I'm doing kind of live within me. It's hard to explain this, and and I. I was writing a, a Doctor Who novel with uh, Terry Molloy, who's, who's Davros in the TV show, we're, we're writing the Davros Diaries. And Terry would put up, ring me up and put on his Davros voice. And then I would talk to him. You know, I, would, I would read out the dialogue, and he said he would stop very quietly and say, he would, he would be like, because that's Davros. You're just reading out exactly what Davros would say. So it's weird. The characters kind of live with you when you write them. And they stay with you. And I mean, I write lots of like different video games for like, Sony and, and do different things, and even music videos for Sony and stuff. And the characters stay with you. They really live with you. So whenever it comes to picking up um, a thread from the stroke again, that's what happens. I kind of just tap into that, and then it, it sort of comes through. But then, you know, Decker and I have an agreed continuity. We have an agreed... Uh, we know what the characters sound like. We know what they look like. You know, so it's quite easy to sort of um, to do to do that almost in your head because it's it's so ingrained now. It's so much a part, I think, of the two of us now that it's just it's there.
2: And, and we use Bram's Dracula as, as sort of you know the Bible. That's yeah. how it starts. And right. and uh, I happen to have a couple of versions of, on my computer that I've done annotations with different versions that I've published that have different things added in. And and whenever I Say, Chris, okay, let, let's, let's go back and use Bram's Van Helsing. I'll go back to one of these, one of these work files and make sure I pull out exactly the words, exactly the things how Bram described him. And, and that, that goes on a page, which then I used to talk to Chris. It goes onto his whiteboard. And that's the Van Helsing where Bram wanted him. Bram created him and how we'll use him. Now we, we will sometimes alter those a little bit, not too, too much. But we'll we'll make some subtle changes. But we both agree we always start with the basic characters that Bram has introduced, and we may make minor modifications—not a lot, but enough to modernize them a little bit and make them interesting. Uh, but you know, you start with the Bible; you can't go wrong.
1: Does that does that ever bother you? Or I guess when other people take liberties with Bram's work, like Dracula, there's so many versions of Helsing and and Dracula and stuff like that, and variations across the board over the years. Do, do any of them ever kind of sidetrack? You kind of go, oh, oh, that's terrible, or I wish they didn't do that. I mean, you don't even have to give names. I mean, of course we'd like them, but no. <laughs> no, no, but I, I, I mean more in a general sense of when people sort of really kind of change uh, the theme of the original idea.
2: Well, you know, you've touched on a nerve, Alan. But again, Chris and I are tactful guys. Um, it's it's art, it's interpretation, it's reimagination, and and for for at least me, and I know we've ch- chatted about it a lot. I just say, look, it, it's it's a bit of an homage. You know, you copy somebody, you take his character, and you go off in a different direction. It's like, wow, that's quite interesting. That's different. I really like that, or that's mm-hmm. not really for me, but it's still adds to the mystique of things that Bram created back in 1897. And uh, I know where they came from. I know where how they originated. And, boy, they're going off in a very different direction. But as long as people keep buying the books or the comics or watching those movies or the streaming, it's like that stays alive. And, and my taste is not the same as everybody else's, so I let it go. Again, it may not be my taste in particular about a depiction of of any of the characters or the one that is most changed is the Dracula. But as long as, you know, as long as it is still popular, as long as it is still getting, you know, putting people to go into theaters or or watch it on Netflix or other streaming, that's okay. Uh, Because I've I've matured. At the beginning, it bugged me. But I've matured to the point where saying, well, Chris and I do a little alteration ourselves. Uh, why can't other folks? Chris, how do you, how do you feel about that?
0: I'm, I'm not quite as tactful. I I feel, I feel particularly aggrieved whenever I watch something that's terrible. I don't, I don't mind the changes. If it's if it's something that, um, for example, Ford Coppola's interpretation of the book, it's quite masterful in some ways, and it's entertaining, and you can sit down and watch it, and you can say, yeah, I was entertained by that. That was fun. That was pretty cool. Love the costume design. Love the sets. But then if you look at Dracula 3000, if you've ever had them sports, you see in that film. <laughs> or some of the, you know, the other like, really, really terrible knockoff Draculas. I get aggrieved at that, but I generally get aggrieved at per storytelling. I think that's what annoys me the most. Um, you have a, a, a literary classic, uh, a piece of text that you can extrapolate from, and then you end up something that's particularly terrible. I'm I'm grieved at that. Actually, I think that I think that actually damages the original novel. But if it's just a if you're talking about a different interpretation, but it's done well, sure why not? Like right? that that's that's uh, that's fun. Well, we've got the filmmakers of Dracula uh,
1: three thousand here. No, <laughs> <laughs> the way to go, Chris. On the other line, yeah, so <laughs> they're on the other line. So let's talk. No, um, no, I understand. I mean, it, it, it's just when they take something that's. Uh, a creation like Dracula and just putting really poor writing or poor effort, effort into it and making it come out not that good, it's, it's irritating. Cause it's well,
2: Alan, here's an example, a very, a very recent one, and uh, I'll throw this out to, to, to all of you guys on the show here. Uh, recently, The uh, Last Voyage of the Demeter came out. It didn't last very long in the cinemas. The I thought it was excellent. It was really close to Branch Chapter 7, uh, which we we're only left with the, with the ship's log. Obviously we, we know the ending already. And, and I thought it was pretty true. There's lots of jump scares. It, it was a, a good, scary kind of claustrophobic film, very close to what, what Bram wrote. And yet it didn't hit a home run in, in the opening weekend, which seems to be the way many films are judged. It was on the heels of Barbie and Oppenheimer, which, you know, just blew up everybody. You know, everybody hadn't gone to a theater for years, spent all their monies on it. And, and yet that one is now released of uh, Demeter in in streaming and and yet i thought it was really close the film that came out a few months earlier Renfield with Nicolas Cage was a complete reimagination of the character Renfield as a mental health person nicolas cage did a great job but it was a, it was a comic horror nothing like dracula but it was You know, somewhat of a success, because for some reason people like (laughs) Nick Cage and a comic horror. Not my cup of tea. I much prefer the dark Voyage of the Demeter, but that just shows that, you know, everybody has their own taste and to each his own. I don't know what you guys thought about those two or if you'd seen them, but that's a perfect example of the way reimagining and things have changed and not always everybody's cup of tea.
1: Yeah, well, I I watched I think I got through about five minutes of of Cage's uh, version <laughs> and I just you know I just was bored I just kind of, I don't know why I think Dave liked it better but uh, I did yeah but I, I did I haven't of, seen I haven't seen the newest one the uh, last voyage well that that brings me like Chris so when you when you are taking all of these characters and you're bringing the, these characters back into the verse like Frankenstein and Jekyll and Hyde and stuff like that how 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 close to what Bram had done with them or written them are you keeping it?
0: So this is the interesting uh, sort of thing about the Stoker verse because it is a true verse. So for the RPG that, that's come out, and, you know it's a massive success. It's a you know bestseller now in RPG terms. Uh, it's sold out across all the gaming expos that it's been to. Uh, we started to introduce uh, characters such as you know the, the Frankenstein's monster, Jekyll and Hyde, uh, Miss Havisham from uh, Dickens. Uh, Sherlock Holmes, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But what we wanted to do was look at the characters as if Bram Stoker had created them. So for Miss Havisham, for example, we turned her into a a zombie, a member of the undead. She's perpetually waiting for her husband. She's covered in cobweb, you know, cobwebs. She's waiting for her husband, you know, and I thought that was a great sort of twist. that She's actually a member, you know, a member of the undead, but that perpetually waiting. Part of it, I thought, would you? Know, Bram would really, um, really have gravitated towards. Frankenstein's creature uh, is an artist in East End of London. That's what's happened to him, and I saw this very clearly that he because because Bram was a painter, he was a he sketched, he painted, um, and I could see Frankenstein's creature being taken in by this artist lady into an upstairs lodging place above a public house and she gives Frankenstein's creature paints. Now, Shelley's uh, Frankenstein's creature is quite um, articulate, quite verbose. This would be that he's, he's articulate but he cannot, he cannot fully express his emotions, so he uses paint. And what, this, what the artist lady notices is that Frankenstein's creature uses one colour on the canvas And she teaches him to use many colours. And that is obviously to show him that life can be experienced through many different emotions. She is tragically uh, run down by a carriage. The Frankenstein's creature carries on her legacy of of painting and artwork. And the citizens of, of the East End of London leave him food because he's actually become the protector of the poor and the impoverished of that era. So that's two examples of how I think Bram would have recrafted, or if he had created those characters, how he would have created those characters. Jekyll and Hyde's an interesting one as well, because we've got um, the classic conflict between good and evil, which Bram was obsessed about. Uh, a lot of Bram's work is linked to that. The You know, why does evil exist in a, in a world that was created by a good and benevolent god? Um, because Bram's work is very theological. It's very theological. And, you know, Jekyll and Hyde. Jekyll's been promised that he wants to get rid of all the evil in him. And what person wouldn't want to get rid of their shadow, get rid of all the evil? But as we know, uh, through studies of uh, Freud and Jung, you must always be able, you must always try and integrate your shadow self. Jekyll can't integrate his shadow self because it's, it's too dark; it consumes him. So whenever he takes the potion and then transforms into Hyde, um, it just gets too much for him. Now, uh, uh, he jumps out the window, to try. Jekyll jumps out the window to try and kill himself. Halfway through, he transforms into the hide, and as he hits the ground, they're fused together as one, and they survive. So now Jekyll's in this hell that he has to now live with his shadow self, and the two of them are constantly talking and bickering and at, at, at different odds with each other. They're truly a split personality, but they've become one unit, almost like Two-Face from, from Batman in a way.
1: Welcome to my life.
0: But that's, that's how I sort of looked at, the, I looked at um, how I think Bram would have taken the psychological dynamics, the theological dynamics, and the personal dynamics of those characters and uh, and, and, and reshape them sort of into that. And you see more of this in Issue 2 because we've got all those characters in Issue 2 as well um, in a, a, te- a couple of text-based stories on um, a little sidestep as well.
1: Yeah, and I know that um, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, I guess he was friends with Bram, and I know we're, we're talking to a historian, actually tomorrow's interview, with Neil Story from the UK, and I, so they were friends, and, of course, now you're also bringing in Sherlock Holmes into the Stokerverse. So how is that, that going to work?
2: Well, let, let me just start by saying you, you got a great guy, Neil Story, who, who has done a nice biography, good work on, on Bram's biography. And I don't often say that, um, because some of the biographies I don't like, but Neil has, has consulted me from the beginning, a couple things that, that I, I you know, helped him reimagine. I'm so glad you're talking to him. I can't wait to listen to that show. Oh, I, I
1: love him. He's such a good guy.
2: He's yeah. a great guy. But, you know, Bram and Doyle were actually very close friends. Bram did an article about about his life as he's about to get ready for his his wedding. Um, that that drew them close. Bram and Florence were invited to his wedding. But closer still, I think, as as authors, they they hit it off together. Connagill, with Bram's help, uh, got got one of his short stories uh, on, into a play uh, on at the Lysing Theatre. But there was also a letter that Connagill wrote Bram. Um, congratulating him on Dracula, and it touched upon sort of the whole idea of the occult. There's this one sentence in there that I, I often mention in, in my lectures, and Chris and I kind of use it, you know, from time to time, where he says, you know, the story is the best story of diablerie that I have read for a long time. And it takes, a, a you know, a, one to know one, you know, an occultist like Conrado was to understand that and recognize that the occult is at play in this story and, and that's that makes it easy for, for Chris and I and it's you know it's a tip of a hat to both Bram and Conrado's relationship um, to then in, in, integrate Conrado's greatest creation uh, Sherlock Holmes so I've teetered up nicely for you to t- take it from there on what we do with, with Sherlock Holmes
0: Yeah, yeah, so the whole thing with, with Conan Doyle and Bram Stoker is that they were both Freemasons um, and so am I and there's a lot of that as Decker was saying, a cult in, in, the, in the two authors' writings so I thought it would be a great homage to their friendship to bring Sherlock Holmes into the into the Stokerverse, and obviously we've altered him slightly, but he's there, he's present, and uh, we used him in the RPG because there's a fun adventure that you can play with Holmes uh, and set against sort of the backdrop of murders happening in London, which initially the players believe is Jack the Ripper, but it's not. It's uh, it's one of Dracula's creatures, and. Holmes has encountered supernatural before. So if you remember the Holmesian story, The Sussex Vampire, well, in the Stokerverse version, it actually was a vampire. It wasn't just, um, a little boy that kind of was aggrieved at, uh, his younger brother. Um, it was actually a vampire in our version. So we've sort of changed s- slight moments of Holmes's, uh, Backstory so that now he can accept the supernatural as logical.
1: You know, when these with these characters, what do you think? Like um as a general thought, like you take Sherlock Holmes for instance, or you take Dracula, what is it about certain characters, even if they're fictional, that stay with the world for a hundred years or even longer, and there's tons of duplications and rewriting and, and repeating of the same people go to find Sherlock Holmes home they'll go to England you know like there's all this stuff what what makes them stay generation after generation what what are you guys' thoughts
2: well chris how about I, I'll jump first to dracula here one of the things i've thought about what gives him such endurance is that as a character in the novel dracula he's not all that well known he's not fleshed out in the sense that authors would put a great detail and, and letting the readers totally understand where he comes from, what his background, what motivates him, Dracula is is Count Dracula is certainly a mystery, and he remains a mystery throughout the novel. We know of Count Dracula mostly from what the characters who are trying to banish him, first avoid him, and, and banish him and destroy him. We know of him through their minds. We don't know Count Dracula himself. And Bram was masterful that way because he's left that great kind of cliffhanger question mark. Who he really is? Where did he really come from? What motivates him other than you know drinking blood and, and staying alive, staying immortal? So that has resulted in, at the moment, 127 years of writers, screenwriters, playwrights, of integrating their thoughts, their ideas into who this Dracula could have been without too much, go, you know, a, a diversion from what Bram set up. So if you set up a character and then somebody made him completely different, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 years later, there would be some obvious, you know, fans that would get upset. Now, I have got a little upset when the vampires in Twilight Sparkle in the day in their little teeny boppers, <laughs> but they're not, they're not Dracula. So I can live with that, but they do take the vampire genre and turn it upside down. Got a lot of people in the theaters, and Stephanie Meyer sold a lot of books, and that's, that's okay. But that's why I think that the Count Dracula that Chris and I use, the back-to-Bram's Dracula, you know, we didn't have to go too, too far, even though people have taken a different direction they still recognize that original, you know, revenant from the grave. And that that's where he started. That's what we recognize, even though he's been able to take on many different variations in 127 years.
0: Okay.
1: And now, um, Chris, did you have a, an add to that or no?
0: I think it's depth and resonance. I think that's the, you know, for all the, sort of the characters like Doctor Who or Sherlock Holmes or Dracula or you know, I particularly like Van Helsing myself, and I say a, a big fan of, of Van Helsing. Um, that, that resonance characters have because they speak to more than what we, we read on the surface, and I think that's very powerful. Um, I look at modern entertainment, and the reason I started all of this, I started this journey, was because modern entertainment failed me and continues to fail me. There's no depth or resonance to about ninety percent of it all. Um, With Sherlock Holmes, there's there's a resonance because he's a dependable guy who can solve mysteries. But beyond that, he's somebody who's deeply committed to his art form. In studying Scarlet, you know Watson draws up a list of of what Holmes knows and what he doesn't know. He doesn't know much about literature or astronomy, but he knows about poisons and, and horticulture because he's committed to the art and craft. He's also somebody who's honourable, um, who has good intentions, and he's reliable and trustworthy. And he's also mysterious. So all of that sort of the depth and resonance of the character would make him somebody you want to know. Um, and I'm talking about Arthur Conan Doyle's homes, I'm not talking about the modern interpretation of ones that has him as sort of a slightly cool sociopathic, psychopathic, one-dimensional character. And you can draw conclusions from that, what, TV show I'm talking about there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it, and, and that, but it really, really bugs me. And I think that's, I think that's why, if you look at Dracula, Dracula's <laughs> exceptionally evil. He's malevolent. He's violent. He's vicious. He's, but he's also intelligent. He's got animal cunning. He can manipulate people through words. He doesn't necessarily have to use hypnosis. He can manipulate you through words. And he's the devil. He's absolutely the devil. He whispers in your ear, what would you, you know, what do you want? What would you like? And then he sets people on the worst path in order for them to get what they want. Um, So apart from his his supernatural abilities, he's he's got that almost. There's a beautiful painting, and I can't remember who painted it, but it's it's the Antichrist. So he looks like Christ, but he's got horns, and he whispers in the ear of people. I think of a politician. And it's that <laughs> Antichrist figure. Very, very powerful Antichrist figure. Again, resonant. The manipulation resonant. We, we may not like what Dracula does or who he is, but I think that's why he's a powerfully attractive character to read and find out more about. So, Alan, I am just going to say this, you know, to recognize. These are the two
2: most often adapted literary characters into film. Sherlock Holmes first, Dracula second. And, and they've both, you know, gone on, you know, pr- pretty much, you know, over a hundred, you know, hundred and a quarter century. So it stands to reason, even though I'm not a, a film writer or a playwright, that in all that time, creative people want to put their own mark, their own spin on these two characters. And so, again, I can only imagine that, uh, you know, a, a producer. Wants to make a, wants to make a Dracula film or Sherlock Holmes film and they get a bunch of writers to, to give their, their pitch and to write their, their, uh, you know, beginnings of a screenplay or or write a pilot. And say, well, what's, what's different about this? It's always what's new and what's different. It's not, oh, can you make the same one that's, that is exactly the same as Bram Stoker could? Nobody's done that. So they, there seem to be the industry seems to, place people, the writers, the creatives, on a path to change them. Just because that's you know, people want to say, oh, that's an interesting take. That guy's really what a great writer. He's he's added this to it. So I think there is, and it's something that Chris and I try to balance. You you want to do a little originality here so you're not just the same old, same old, but you do need to stay true to the original but you want to add a little something interesting so that you will stand out as a writer saying, we're just not rehashing stuff. That's that's where some people, I think, and as you've heard Chris say, go too far and, and don't don't suit us that much. But, you know, that that's that's the way of the world when it comes to great as an entertainment. <laughs> right. Well, you know, speaking of homes
1: and the devil, right? when I think of vampires, for some reason I think of, like, guardian dogs, hounds of hell. Um, will the hounds of hell, or have they... Uh, well, I should say the Hounds of the Baskervilles from from the Home story. will they make an appearance or
0: have they?
2: Well, come on, you know in, in Dracula it, the the big black dog in Yorkshire certainly did wasn't highly um, you know sensationalized. and I don't think Chris, you may know better because you know one of the books we're working on that you're doing the lion's share of is c- c- cinematic history of 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 Dracula films,
0: but the yeah, every vampire film ever made.
2: Yeah, but he's, Chris, <laughs> have, have you noticed the black dog, the the bagashed in in Yorkshire? When when the damage in the book now, when yes. the Demeter comes a boat comes crashes into the shore, Dracula does not leave the ship as a wolf or as a bat, yeah, or as a as as a, as Count Dracula in a human form. He jumps off as a big black dog, runs up the hundred and ninety nine steps, seeks refuge in a, in, a, in a grave of a of a suicide, and, and we learn later on, people that are in the know, that is the myth of the big black dog of, of Yorkshire, which is very close to, you know, the hand of the basketballs.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's interesting that there's a real animal, uh, animal and predator motif in Dracula as well. So it's it's kind of one of the most ominous powers that Dracula has, and a lot of people don't delve into it, but it's that ability to manipulate animals and then be able to transform into them as well. So that kind of adds to the savagery and suspense of the novel, and then it just highlights that Dracula's position as the ultimate predator. And you get this, like, like Bram repeatedly references the animals in strange ways of their service to Dracula. You know, you've got the whole thing, that, you know, the bat and the dog, being able to command animals with the wolves, and then you've got, you know, even the Grenfell, the Grenfell eating insects and, and, and larger animals. There's a re- recurring sort of theme in animals with, with, with that, with, uh, within, within the events of Dracula. So I find that, I find that fascinating. And um, the book that we're talking about, and we signed a contract, so I think we can talk about it, it's from yeah. Tell, Us, Tell Us Publishers. It's the entire cinematic history of vampire films from the late 1800s, Right the way through to modern times, and that is a labour of love, I can tell you.
1: <laughs> oh, <my. laughs> but it,
0: it, when you research it, when you research all the films, you can just see that you know, how powerful the Dracula story has been and how influential in every single vampire film. Even, even like modern classics like Near Dark, there's there's powerful motifs in there. So uh, Decker and I are sort of we're reviewing the films, we're exploring the films. Uh, but we're also then injecting a little bit about, you know, for example, Nostrati and and the issues with Nostrati and and Dracula and all sort of aspects of that. So we are beavering away on that, and it is coming out. I've been been told the deadline is in the next couple of months because it's definitely coming out next year. So there you go. (laughs) You've heard it first. There we go.
1: The reveal. Yeah. Speaking of reveals here, you talk about... uh, um, Revealing who may have been the real Dracula in the comic book, and you mentioned Henry Irving, and not not Vlad and stuff like that, and that's going to be in a side strip. So explain that and explain a side strip for people.
2: Well, Chris, you, you tell them a the side script, and I'll give a little bit of, of my version of that merged character. So you go with the side script first.
0: So a side strip is essentially a smaller comic book narrative that's within a, a graphic novel. So for example, your, our main Dracula story is generally about 22 pages, 22 to 25 pages. So a side strip can be, you know, from, from uh, five pages to 10 pages. So it's, it's um, usually very quickly told narrative. Um, and very, uh, side strips are, they have to be very powerful because they have to pack a punch from the first three panels. Um, so uh, that's it's one of, it's one of the art forms of trying to tell a comic book narrative is the shorter uh, is the shorter page volume, but you can do so much in even five pages. So what we're doing is we are in in one of the side strips in issue two. We are uh, going to start to delve into this a little bit more. What was the connection between Henry Irving and Dracula? And I'm going to let Decker take over now. So, yeah, just before I do, it's a a side script is usually,
2: it it, uh, contributes to the story, but it's sort of like bonus material. You know, you're reading the story and you go off the side script near the end or wherever it's put, and it's like, oh, yeah, that gives you a little bit extra. But, uh, yeah, let's get back to this, because Bram was influenced by many things in his life, but he was not, and he used them, he wove them into the fabric of the story, these influences in his life. People places, and events that really happened. And quite often what he did was he had merged those things together, changed them up just a little bit. So that you weren't exactly sure, other than places like Whitby, which was named Whitby in the book, and the the, the Demeter crashed there. Well, it was actually the Dimitri that really crashed there under very similar circumstances. And he did a little subtle changes with the storm and so on that he got wrecked. You know, records of to bring the demeter in. Well, probably the most complex issue has that has been argued about over the years has been who is his inspiration and his model been for Count Dracula? And we know he did a lot of research into the current, uh, the contemporary at the time. To- at the time, the vampire myths, both in America in the medieval days. We know the books that he looked at, and, and it was all of these, you know, creatures or spirits coming out of the graves and all that. But he also looked into the history of Vlad Dracula, Vlad the Impaler, Vlad Dracula the Third, the Prince of Wallachia, right next door to Transylvania, who happened to have a very interesting and bloodthirsty backstory. Uh, he was also referred to as the Devil in two of the books that Bram looked at for his research that was in the London Library. But that's only one piece of him. Vlad Dracula was not a vampire. He was not um, a a blood drinker by, you know, I wouldn't say by any stretch of the imagination. He was bloodthirsty and did some horrific things to people. But the actual persona, the description of his Count Dracula bore an incredible, you know, connection to his boss, Sir Henry Irving who was a very dominating person, and, and I believe really treated Bram much like a Jonathan Harker type, this sort of subservient person that came over to consummate the real estate transactions. The, the guy that was having to do all the paperwork for the count. Bram did the same thing for 27 years for Irving, always was in his shadows, always was in the background, but quite happy to be there. I wouldn't say the same for Harker, but nonetheless, this is an element of the relationship that Bram garnered from himself—the Henry Irving and Bram Stoker relationship—but also the fact of his his physical appearance and the way he was. He described him was Henry Irving playing the role of Mephistopheles, that that devil in the play Faust, and he saw that it was the second most popular stage play that uh that Irving did during Bram's time with him so you've got the real Henry Irving the nocturnal sort of lifestyle of the theater Irving and Stoker traveling all over the place together their adventures they went on very similar to that nocturnal sort of lifestyle of the count in castle dracula the count traveling by ship to come to uh, to england the, the all the boxes, very similar to Bram having to carry you know arrange all the boxes of the sets of the Lyceum Theater, going over to America and back eight times. So he took all these similarities, the the devil in Faust, Henry Irving, Vlad the Impaler, and put them all together. And and so since so many people have already connected him, mostly in film, to Vlad the Impaler, Chris and I said, Well the next logical thing to do is dangle Henry Irving out there. Let's let people know that he was a major component of this famous Count Dracula, and and that's you know why we've come up with this this extra strip, to uh, explain some of their relationship and how that relationship in real life could have transferred over into Bram Stoker using him as his inspiration for Count Dracula. Chris, did I leave anything out?
0: No, that's spot on, exactly spot on, and for eagle eyes. Uh, readers, they'll see the side strip actually links into our main strip as well. Uh, but I'm not going to spoil that.
1: Uh, actually, actually, so when we talk about this, the artwork, who who is behind the artwork in this comic book?
0: So we have um, our main artist is a, is a chap called Chris Geary. So he's returning from uh, issue one. Uh, we have an amazing colorist called Matsoff, and that works extensively in the UK comic book industry. Uh, most notably with uh, 2008 ad um, if you pick up a copy of 2000 AD this week, you'll see his colours in the latest Dutch dress. Um, our side strips are being illustrated by the prolific and extremely talented David Hitchcock. And he, his work's incredible. It's, um, it's very gothic, it's very detailed, and he always slips in little hidden things into the artwork. So whenever you look back on it two or three times, you know, you start to see different things in there, which I love. So those are our main artists. And then we have uh, alternative cover artists, but I'm not allowed to talk about to them too much. But they're uh, stars within the comic book industry.
1: You could tell us, but
0: you'd have to kill us.
2: <laughs> it would be
0: ugly. It would be yeah. ugly. A lot of bloodshed.
1: Yeah, it would be real <laughs> messy. Well, and how did the first one do? do you, are you happy with the way the first one turned out and – and how the the sales went through, or do you? And what do you expect for the next one? Do you want
0: me to take that one, Decker?
2: Yeah, because I mean, quite honestly, I mean, I guess from the standpoint, I had I couldn't tell you numbers, uh, but I never I just, can. I, <laughs> I, you know, I, yeah. I don't know.
0: <laughs> I, I, I we haven't we haven't actually got the, the 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 numbers yet, but basically we're selling out every every we go. So every convention we've been selling out before a publisher. Um, our publisher has put on the Zip page that it's massively successful and he's told me the same thing. Uh we were picked up by Diamond Distribution to go out into um North America and generally that only happens with the with the more popular titles. So we've done very well with the comic. I tell you, everywhere I
2: take take my stack and go to my conventions I sell out and I say, Gosh, I should have bought more. Um, because it's that the artwork is so cool. The story concept is so cool that the, the extra strips are neat. Um, and, and I'm, so I'm really looking forward to this. You know, we did this first one on, 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 uh, on Zoop. We're, uh, we're going to do another, another one on Zoop. They're, they're going to take care of uh, the fulfillment of this, which hopefully will make it much easier for people to, when they pledge for it, uh, to, to get their, get their copies later on. We had a few hiccups at the beginning when there was a strike in England and, one of the distributors lost a massive box of, of, of books coming to North America, so that didn't look good. But, you know, things like that happen. But we think we've recovered from that. Our our, our publisher, Shane Chesby, with um, Scratch Comics has assured us that it's not going to happen. Zoop is going to take care of everything. So I think we're just going to build on the success, uh, and, and hopefully Chris and I will get numbers at some point so we can tout them properly. But, you know, I, I get great feedback
0: anywhere I go with it. Uh, so I'm real proud of it myself as well. We wouldn't be going to issue two if issue one hadn't worked. It's yeah, it. exactly. It's pretty much it's as simple as that because, and the comic book industry, as you guys know, it's tough. It's very, very tough visibility, and it's tough to get out there. The fact that we've got you know into every major convention, um, including London, London Film and Comic Con this year, um, we're going to be at Thought Bubble, which is the UK's premiere kind of the elite convention for comic books were we're there uh next month I believe, and we're all across North America um with plans to go into europe as well so i mean that's 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 pretty respectable i'm i'm very proud of that,
1: yeah, and so where do people uh get the book the comic book, and where do they find you guys or do they like uh, any other conventions or shows you're going to and um, websites or but give us, give us all the information of finding the two, you
2: two. Well, Chris, uh, let's just, we, I think this is going to be the first time we're going to be able to drop the, our yeah. the Stokerverse um, website. Come on, man, do
0: it, do the honors. <laughs> right. Okay. I'll, I'll do it. It's a, uh, it's www.stokerverse.com and you'll be able to go there. You'll see, um, all our products, all our games, all our comic books, including you know Dracula Return, Cut the Light Worm. Um, you can read up on what uh, what Decker, what Decker's written as well, Decker's bibliography, and all the bits and pieces that I've been doing uh, Doctor Who stuff and science fiction stuff and audios and things as well. So it's a one stop shop for the for the Stokerverse. If you want to grab the comics from scratch, and you can actually see some of the images of the. Um, of the artwork for issue one on Scratch Comics. It's uh, www.scratchcomics.co.uk. If you um, Google Dracula The Return, Cult of the White Worm, you'll find that it's stocked in some local comic book shops across the states, including uh, New York, uh, Washington, Massachusetts, I've been told, and you'll find online North American retailers as well. Chris, what is the the big one in England? Forbidden the Planet. Book. That's it. Absolutely yeah. correct. We are in yeah. Forbidden Planet. We're in Forbidden Planet. Stokerverse is in Forbidden Planet twice because we've got our Stokerverse RPG from, from Nightfall Games, which is a beautiful hardback, uh, over 300 pages uh, RPG book, which is also an encyclopedia of Reverse. You don't just get the, uh, the RPG game, but you get all the facts and and characters and all sorts of information, the characters, and also some stories we actually have a Superverse RPG storybook which contains um, 60 pages of, of story content, exclusive story content from Decker and myself. Um, we have some story content as well in the RPG. Um, and it's in Forbidden Planet along with our Dracula Return issue one. And do we, are we able to publicize
2: where people can get that really cool board game with the figures from Crooked Dice? Oh yeah
0: it is, you're completely correct it's uh, www.crookeddice.co.uk and if you go there uh, you'll be able to go and look at the um, products list and you will see the uh, Stokerverse 7TV Dracula uh, series of products and then
2: since I'm a Montreal boy originally and I'm saying that as a hint. Are we allowed to talk about that product coming from that side of Canada, the dark side of Canada?
0: <laughs> no, we, can't. we can talk. We can talk about. Yes, you know what? I know the one you're talking about. This is a bit cryptic. Yes, we can talk about the video game, like the video Okay, game that's what yeah. I didn't, I didn't yeah, know. Yeah. For to not say the that other yet. one, <laughs> not the other thing. No, no, no. no. We have another <laughs> thing coming from 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 Canada. Another. that's not uh, the, that that it's very exciting. God, I think it's it's actually could potentially be. The biggest product we've done yet, but we can talk about we can talk about the video game. So we've got yeah. an upcoming video game called Dracula Dark Return, uh, Dracula Dark Rain, and it's being created by Spacebot Interactive. It's seventy five percent complete, and if you go to I'll go to the uh, the website now, um, that's incubate. It's incubate. That's it is right. incubate. Yes. So you can go to uh, www N Q E it, so it's I N C U B E it dot the
2: number eight.
0: The the, the number the eight. numeral eight,
2: yeah. Yep. Q eight number. Yeah. It's some incredible cool stuff. It's out there, as Chris mentioned, on your website. Chris and I are very active on Facebook. We've got a Dracula the Return Facebook page. We both have our own pages. We've got a Stokerverse page. And uh, if you want more on Bram Stoker and the family. My wife and I actually run Bram Stoker estate.com where we give lots of information about all the members of the family, even the ones that Chris and I have, have, have uh, used from the family, uh, Bram's other brothers, uh, George Thornley and, and, and some others will be making appearances as well.
1: Well, fantastic. Of course, we'll have all of that up on the website. People can find it easily. And, uh, we really appreciate you coming by and, uh, you know, taking your time, taking time away from uh, fishing there, Dacker. Right.
2: <laughs> well, the last time we talked, I, went, we, I was fishing in, in Fernie, yeah. uh, one of my favorite places. And I, I keep coming back. And, uh, you know, that, that's you know what I try to do to just clear the head the rest of the time. It's nicely full of Dracula, Bram Stoker, and all things Stokerverse. Not a bad place to be for the month of October.
1: No, Fernie's a good place, you know. And Well, I just think you could you could do a new Dracula, Canadian Dracula, that says sorry all the time. <laughs>
2: <laughs> a polite Dracula, yeah?
1: <laughs> <laughs> Dracula, eh? Sorry. Oh, I'm terrible. Anyway, well, we appreciate you being here. So we have Chris McCauley and Dacre Stoker. Thank you for being here. Thanks, guys. Thanks. Thanks for
2: having me. Thanks, guys.